0: Welcome to Access Utah, I'm Tom Williams. In his new book, Finding God in the Waves, Mike McHarg tells the story of how his evangelical faith dissolved into atheism as he studied the Bible, a crisis that threatened his life, his friendships, even his marriage. Years later, he was standing on the shores of the Pacific Ocean when a bewildering, seemingly mystical moment motivated him to take another look. But this time, it wasn't faith or scripture that led him back to God, it was science. In Finding God in the Waves, Science Mike, as he's also known, draws on his personal experience to tell the unlikely story of how the latest research in neuroscience, cosmology, and physics led him back to faith. Mike McCarg is host of Ask Science Mike and co-host of the Liturgists podcast. He's written for Relevant, Don Miller's Storyline, BioLogos, and Washington Post. He lives in Tallahassee, Florida with his wife, Jenny, and uh, two daughters. Mike McHarg, uh, welcome to the program.
1: Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much.
0: A uh, very interesting uh, a story, very relevant uh, to to today. Um, and uh, as as the publisher uh, wrote about uh, out about this book, "What do you do when God dies?" Question facing millions today as science reveals a universe that's self creating. As American culture departs from Christian social norms, the idea of God begins to seem implausible at best, barbaric at worst. Um, I want to start. Uh, we'll loop back and get your very interesting story. I want to start sort of in the middle. This is uh, part two of the book, chapter eight. Um, an encounter you had, you're, you're, you've done a presentation on stage, a big church in Texas, recounting your experience, how you lost your faith, how you regained uh, faith. And uh, you write that uh, many people are, are moved. They say they very much appreciate hearing your journey, but you do get some people who ask a variation of the same question, how do you know all of this just didn't happen in your head? and you talk about meeting a a particular man dressed in black. Uh, His posture and his fist clench indicate that he's either nervous or angry, and it uh, turns out as he gets closer to you in line that uh, that it's both. I wonder if you could tell me a bit about that.
1: Yeah, that uh, person uh, made such an evocative image of a really frequent encounter. Um, My work is, is interesting in the diversity of people that it draws. So I have people that are very conventionally religious and and Christian who follow my work and are encouraged by it, Then I have people who are kind of in a spiritual, not religious frame, and have some kind of longing for God that they really don't know what to do about because they're troubled by the behavior of the Church or Christian theology. But this this man in particular embodied uh, skeptics who appreciate my commitment to... uh, communicating science accurately, and not uh, putting undue weight on my story as evidence or proof that would convince someone else, Um, but even beyond that, an incredulity that the experience has any objective value, uh, that that how can this mean anything, the fact that you had this experience, and aren't there more plausible explanations in the world than God reached out to you? (laughs) And, uh, you know, it was an intense exchange, but one that I have often and, frankly, one that I look forward to.
0: You, you look forward to it. Uh, one of the things that, that struck me so much about this encounter is, it, it, is it's, it's a metaphor for, uh, on the one hand, you'd wonder why would this person care so much, that, so much so that he showed up to your event and waited in line and w- wanted to engage you about this and, and express his skepticism.
1: Yeah, and I have four or five folks like that at every event I do. Um, and I, to me, it tells me something that they're there and that they care that much. Um, and I, I do my best to, to, to honor and integrate their perspective into my material. Uh,
0: and one thing I, I could—you uh, mentioned this, uh, this particular person, the other people, like, I guess perhaps since you work at the intersection of science and, and faith, they're concerned perhaps that you're misrepresenting science or—, or Twisting science?
1: Yeah, initially. You know, I work really, really hard as a non-scientist to accurately present scientific fact and not twist it to fit a faith narrative. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I, I don't have a lot of people worrying that I misrepresent science. What skeptics typically tell me is that they're concerned that the fact that I'm scientifically literate And a person of faith will encourage my audience to draw false assumptions based on my work, things I'm not actually saying, but that they'll infer uh, because I speak accurately to scientific issues, but I'm also a person of faith.
0: The other strain here, and what I'm getting to, is this divide. There seems to be a big divide, I don't know if you feel it's growing, between science, uh, people who you know, who, who believe fervently in, in, in science and uh, people who have religious faith. This particular person is probably stands in for for a lot of people uh, with his beliefs uh, who enc- encountered you at the in, the, in that Texas event. Um, you know, he indicts religion. And and you heard this from Sam Harris and the atheists, uh, a faith that harbors pedophiles, pedophiles. Uh, Presses gay and lesbian people, demands everyone else adhere to their ideas about morality. It's, it's, it's an in, one strand of this is an indictment of, of faith and religion.
1: Yeah, you know, we've reached such a, a point of polarization in our society, and I think the dialogue between people of faith and skeptics is really emblematic of the way we tend to talk at each other instead of to each other, that we're most interested in having the other person understand why we're correct and not interested at all in learning why they hold their position to, be, to begin with of having some degree of empathy and understanding about the other and you know sam harris is probably better than most atheists at exploring the merits of spirituality at least most public and prominent atheists but it's it's a it's a systemic problem in our society that frankly leads millions of Americans to feel like they don't belong in either camp. They have some longing for spiritual experiences that atheists don't take seriously, but they also find some of the social justice wars and culture wars the Church engages in troubling and Christian theology too confining. And that's why I think the fastest-growing religion in America today is not Christianity or atheism, but people who say they have no religious affiliation at all.
0: And this would include uh, people who identify as atheists or agnostics or they don't have a particular religion but they they are questing in a certain way.
1: Yeah, well it's there are atheists that are open to a search. Mm-hmm. But there's there's some people that I would I would consider evangelical or fundamentalist atheists which are not most atheists. They're just the most vocal who also alienate this. So, you know, we typically include atheists and agnostics as a segment of the no religious affiliation audience, but they're not a majority. They're, they're a relatively small slice of that group.
0: So the a time when uh, people don't seem to be affiliating as much with organized religion, that there still is spirituality out there? That's what you're encountering?
1: I'm finding that people are maybe even more interested in spirituality in that state than, you know, people I knew in church as I grew up.
0: Mm-hmm. I want to, uh, to get into your story, a uh, fascinating story and and uh very funny passages as well. It's it's fun to read. Uh um and profound as well. Um so you were you were raised uh Southern Baptist, I believe.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. As uh, as conservative and as evangelical as they come.
0: Yeah. Um and uh, you're a self-described nerd.
1: I uh I've got red hair, so I had a nice copper bowl haircut as a kid. I used to wear Hawaiian shirts. I love sci-fi and computer programming. Uh, I don't think I could be nerdier. <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> and you embrace it, so so good for you. Um, uh, maybe I could uh, start, start with, um, you were raised in a very stable, you know, sort of a father-knows-best family, right? Uh, uh,
1: That's a really perfect assessment of my family yeah
0: <laughs> um so before i get to before i get to a crisis which happened when you were 25 years old um tell me a little bit about how you wooed and eventually won your your wife uh, jenny <laughs>
1: well you know it's an amazing thing when you grow up as a nerd um the idea that you might ever get a girl to go out with you is utterly unimaginable um But I I approached dating with a nerd's rigor. I studied people who seemed to get girls to go out with them. I studied people, especially comedians, who could command a room and distilled their behaviors into a set of procedures, basically. And I learned uh, through my intellect how to emulate an ease with people. (laughs) And uh, I finally got, you know, girls would go out with me. But there was one in particular who, no matter what I tried, she just wasn't interested. And uh, part of that was I was a, a high school senior and she was in college. So she saw me as like just a, a boy, little kid. Uh, but I was persistent. And uh, it took three years, but I ultimately convinced uh, her that I was worth going out with. And, and we ended up getting married and... Um, you know, I don't know how much the fact that she wouldn't go out with me played a huge role in that she's the person that I then wanted. But uh, I'm so glad it worked out.
0: <laughs> yeah, it sounds like a sounds like a real love story. And she she was religious, right? And so she good Baptist was, girl. Yeah, she she said, if you're going to be with me, you, you got to go to church.
1: Yeah, I went through you know probably a pretty typical thing for a college aged man. Um. I just didn't feel like I needed to do church anymore, and uh, she wanted me to go to church. And I'd tell her I'd see you on Sunday morning, and I'd stay out late Saturday night, and I'd get a knock on on my door about twelve fifteen, uh, loud enough to shake the house, and there would be <laughs> a very unhappy Jenny. And um, I, you know, in time, I, I kind of figured out no, she she means business, mm-hmm. and we found a church together. Uh, that we both really felt like we belonged in and uh, really centered our, our dating life and our engagement and our marriage and our parenting all around the community of this Southern Baptist Church.
0: What was your—describe d- your experience of faith at this time
1: in, in your life. Oh, it was wonderful. You know, so many people have really painful stories about their religious upbringing, and I just don't. Um, I felt like the Baptist Church gave me a tremendous, not only sense of social identity, not just people who were there to grieve when a loved one would die or or, or take care of the family if someone was sick, uh, not just people that we'd have lunch with on Sundays and throughout the week, but also a clarity on what God wanted from me and what was right and what was wrong and who God was. I felt very sure that through my faith I had a good handle on the world, on God, and how to please God. And that was gratifying. That was um, really wonderful. And and to the Baptist Church's credit, it did teach me how to be a good husband and a good father and a good employee and really a productive member of society, uh, and also how to feel very close to God.
0: Those are some, as you write in the book, those are some virtues of organized religion, which uh, some discount. Uh, what was your personal experience of faith that you, you felt uh, you know, when, when you would pray, when you would uh, do other things on a, on a personal level? What did that give you?
1: It's hard to explain to someone who hasn't had a, a very deep and very personal faith. But, you know, I, I was such a nerdy kid. Uh, I didn't have the approval of my peers really at any point from kindergarten to high school. And uh, I'm I'm an extroverted person. I'm a social person. So I felt very lonely most of the time. And this developed a practice where when other kids would play on the playground at recess, I would go hide so I didn't get beat up. And I would pray for all of recess every single day and it made me feel known and loved and cared for and like i belonged and over time i developed a very palpable sense of god's presence of some physical sensation that god was near me that god was listening and um it's very transformative i don't know that i would have made it through my primary education years, and certainly not my middle school years, without feeling this personal connection to God.
0: So uh, you're 25 years old. Your parents call a meeting, I guess, family get-together. You, you arrive at the house. Your dad seems nervous. Your mom's sitting a seat away from him. Your sister's there. And uh, d- describe that, what happened then.
1: Oh, uh, frankly, at that point in my life, probably the worst thing I could imagine. Uh, my dad, who was a minister at our church, he was our, our worship minister, our song director, uh, said that he'd fallen in love with another woman and that he was leaving my mom. With, you know, they have been married more than 30 years. You don't expect to get that kind of news with a marriage that outwardly seems very successful. And it really scared me, because as much as my dad is this very athletic, uh, the opposite of a nerd, right, just a total uh, athlete, jock, alpha male, uh, I did emulate his approach to life. Dad became a deacon when he was 25. So did I. I became a father around the same age, got married around the same age, and I really modeled my life not just of faith, but in general, on my dad's example. And I remember thinking in that moment, well if Dad could cheat and leave his wife, well one day will I will I leave my wife? Will I break up my marriage and what will that do to my kids? And it was it was very frightening and um and it also troubled me as a person of faith because here's my dad who who taught me much of what I knew. About living a life centered around God and about the Bible's teachings, um, and and now here he is flaunting some of the most fundamental commandments we have about marriage, and um, it put me in a state of, of real existential vertigo. Mm.
0: You uh, uh, looking back now, you you sort of poke fun at yourself a little bit, but you you lectured your dad uh, apparently.
1: I did in a very self righteous way. I told Dad that what he was saying was not part of God's plan for marriage. So I told him we would do a Bible study together. I'd lead him through God's plan for marriage. We would get him back on track with God, and that uh, he was not getting divorced. That wasn't an option.
0: <laughs> that's a, that's a, that's a young person, I, I guess. What, what what did your what did your dad? I yeah, wouldn't did, dream of that man. Uh, uh, how did your dad um, respond?
2: Oh,
1: no, he—he's. Um, wait, I say that again.
0: Uh, how did your dad respond to that? We're—we're going to read the Bible together. We're going to get you back on track.
1: Total bewilderment. Um, I'd never stood up to my dad once, and here I did it with great authority. Obviously, because I felt I was speaking on God's behalf—the ultimate authority. Um, and so, but he—he he agreed. He—he—he he, he said, "Okay, we'll do that."
0: Yeah, and well, I guess that's a father's love, right? right there but it, I, I'm guessing it didn't work
1: it did not work it did not work in more ways than one uh, one like my parents ended up getting divorced regardless uh, and as I went on this quest to study the Bible so deeply I could answer any question my dad may have um, I've actually read the Bible four times in one year trying to basically memorize it um, the outcome of that intense Bible study was I, I lost my faith and became an atheist. Uh,
0: and that uh, the chapter is called "Binge Reading the Bible." I thought that was a good, good title. Um, <laughs> l- let me, and I want to, I want to get to that. Uh, how how this dive into the Bible, which you thought would help, um, ended up uh, leading you to lose your faith. Um, I, I want to back up just parenthetically because this is just too good a story to to not have you recount you. you Illustrate just what a tough guy your dad was, how much you admired him. Uh, he at one point impaled himself on a fallen tree. Yeah. And, and just and then just calmly took himself to the hospital. Tell me that story.
1: Well, you know, my dad is just such a rugged person that when he's not working, he goes home and works our family farm. And he was out clearing timber, so trees fall down, they fall over roads, they fall in the, the rows between the planted pines. And he was trying to clear this, this timber, and uh, one tree, I mean, a, a dead tree, passed underneath the front wheels of the tractor and then kind of kicked up and uh, impaled him through his torso, both entering and exiting his body. And that's really. Quick reflex, so he puts the tractor in neutral before it does anything worse, and it's already done. And he can't pull the branch from his body because it's attached to a tree, pinned under a tractor. Right. So he puts the tractor in reverse and slowly backs away, which you know pulls the tree out of his body. It starts to bleed profusely. He's our farm. There's no cell phone coverage, so he drives himself to the barn. He packs his wound with towels. He seals it with duct tape and he drives himself to the hospital where when a nurse removed the self-applied wound dressing, uh, the wound was grievous enough that she fainted. And that's just the kind of person my dad is. He he can push through any pain. He has incredible will and self-control and determination, which is frankly why I was so shocked to see that he could, that will could lapse. Um, when it came to an affair,
0: and so this experience obviously was was uh, you know changed your life. It was uh, in part because you admired him so much, and and I I guess part of this probably is is built on identity, right? That's you and your wife. You built your your family on religion and faith. Your parents had done the same, and I guess the the blended family is is built on religious faith. And and here's your dad violating, I guess, in your eyes, a central tenet of this.
1: Yeah, that's completely, the, it's the turning point in my whole life. I mean, it was the first time I kind of questioned everything I took for granted. Um, and as I kind of went through this process, I, I understood myself to be going through a very rational, detached, fact-finding examination. And it was only much further into the process that I realized how much of it was, was unresolved pain and grief and questions about my identity.
0: Let's take a break when we want to come back more with Mike McCarg. The book is Finding God in the Waves How I Lost My Faith and Found It Again Through Science. We'll talk about how Mike McCarg became a closeted atheist, showing up at church on Sunday mornings, going home afterward to argue on the internet about Richard Dawkins and intelligent design behind the backs of the people he loved most. And then he says years later, a mystical experience involving a conversation with God on the shores of the Pacific Ocean. Same week as a VIP trip to NASA uh, prompted McHarg to reexamine his faith. At this time, it was science, not the Bible or wisdom of theologians that led him back to faith. We'll continue the story um, following this break.
1: Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Devour Utah, a monthly magazine devoted to covering Utah's dining and drink scene with a spotlight on cooking, local happenings, and libations. Available at newsstands or online at devourutah.com.
3: Remarkable Women is made possible with support from the Center for Women and Gender at Utah State University.
2: No woman can call herself free who cannot own and control her body. Margaret Sanger.
3: Sanger popularized the term birth control and opened the first U.S. birth control clinic. She was arrested and tried for disseminating information on contraception. Singer also helped in court cases leading to legalization of contraception in the United States and also pioneered Planned Parenthood. Remarkable Women is made possible with support from the Center for Women and Gender at Utah State University, providing students another perspective of current societal issues. Information at womenandgender.usu.edu.
1: Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Humanities, empowering Utahns to improve their communities through active engagement. Online at UtahHumanities.org.
0: Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We have Mike McCarg with us, also known as Science Mike. Uh, He understands the pain of unraveling faith. He tells the story of how his evangelical faith dissolved into atheism as he studied the Bible, a crisis that threatened his life, his friendship, even his marriage. Years later, as he was standing on the shores of the Pacific Ocean, when a bewildering, seemingly mystical moment motivated him to take another look. But this time it wasn't faith or scripture that led him back to God. It was science. The book is Finding God in the Waves. And a couple of uh, websites where you can find Mike McHarg, FindingGodInTheWaves.com, also Uh Mike McCarg is host of Ask Science uh, podcast and also the Liturgists podcast. He lives in Tallahassee, Florida with his wife, Jenny, and the two daughters. He's with us uh, for the hour. Um, you can join us here at 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or by email to upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at gmail.com. So, Mike McHarg, we left off the story. You've had this crisis in your life, your dad announcing that he's leaving your mother for another woman. You do a deep dive into the Bible as you describe it, almost trying to memorize it, to, to, I guess, to finding answers, right, to this crisis in your life. But it had, I'm sure, the opposite effect to what you expected.
1: Uh, all I felt was questions. Uh, And it it surprised me. You've got to understand, like, I've spent my whole life as a Baptist studying the Bible, but always with a study guide, always with a Sunday school lesson, always with a guided tour that made the Scriptures answer a particular topic without raising any questions. And so here, when I'm trying to, to see the Bible's entire answer to our lives, especially as expressed through marriage, reading it with such intensity made me see things in the text that I'd never seen before and that I was completely unprepared for.
0: And you became, at, I guess at the end of this part of your journey, you became an atheist? Like a closeted atheist, because you were still going to church with your wife?
1: Yeah, I did. i I, I completely lost my faith. And uh I identified as an atheist. Now there's a lot of confusion with the term atheist, so uh, for any skeptics who may be listening, I want to be clear that when I say that, what I mean is I lacked any belief in a God or God's i was I was a true atheist. It wasn't just a dark night of the soul mm-hmm. uh, I just I didn't believe in God at all.
0: yeah, you point out in the book that you know there's many different variations on. Beliefs or lack of belief in God. There's atheists. There's anti-theists who you know actively uh, oppose a, uh, any belief in God. Um, polytheist, uh, you know, deist. I'm going to talk about that as we go along. Um, so, what was that? Must have been un- uncomfortable. Your 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 marriage is is founded on we're church going people. We're believing people. Then you become a closeted atheist. You you're going to church. D- did you? Did you have a talk with your wife at some point about
1: this? (laughs) Not by my choice. (laughs) Uh, You know, it's real isolating to be so enmeshed in a religious tradition and then suddenly not to believe it anymore. And it's very, not only lonely and isolating, but frankly terrifying because you know that most of your friends and family won't understand what you're going through and will frankly see you in a radically different light if you're honest about your experiences and and what you're thinking. So for two years, I just completely pretended to be a Christian. I I taught Sunday school. I led my oldest daughter to Christ. Um, I would counsel high school students about their doubts. But as soon as I left church, it was straight to the Internet to talk to skeptics and atheists and, and, and figure out where I was and, and help people who are questioning their faith make an easier transition into atheism than I did. Mm. And um, ultimately, my wife could tell something was wrong. I mean, clearly, lying about what you believe on a most fundamental level about reality for two years takes its toll, and she could tell that I was off. And... uh she asked me if anything was wrong, and when I said that there was not, she said, well, is it me? I was like, oh my gosh, no, it's not you. And she's like, well, then it's something. What is it? And that led to a multi-hour conversation uh, where I admitted I, I didn't believe in God, and she tried to to win me back to faith unsuccessfully. And that led to, to the darkest days of our marriage where we were together, but alone, Um where she felt isolated, that she couldn't confide in anyone about my doubts, but nor could she confide in me because I didn't share her belief in God. Yeah it's, and it's, that's, a, that's a difficult place for a marriage to be. Yeah, that, that is.
0: And it's those same um, you know community ties in a religion, family ties based on religion that can be very strengthening and satisfying, but which you know if you lose that faith, um, it, it can be very hard.
1: Yeah, and in my case, you know, I have, like, a an uncle who's a Southern Baptist preacher, <laughs> you know, multi-generation church involvement. Those were very, very deep ties, and I had the extra weight of being, like, the most devout of my generation and my family. Uh, so it would be especially shocking if I were to, to renounce my faith. Mm-hmm.
0: Um. So uh, this is a question I often have, you know, these types of discussions. I, I think I know the answer. I'm going to pose it to you anyway. Um, wh- why do we care so much? Uh, it, and it seems to be, you know, people with religious faith, they do care a lot. And, and when you go to the other side, you came home from church and got on the Internet, right? You you'd cared enough about that to reach out to people uh, under that understanding there's a there's a lot that we care about behind both of those.
1: yeah that our beliefs cognitive science and neuroscience show God are very closely tied to our sense of identity so one we're defining ourselves you know kind of via these beliefs uh, but also um we all we crave certainty and so whatever worldview whatever view we have about God being closely a associated with our identity, we want to be very sure about it. And so if other people disagree with us, or other people don't accept, you know, our explanation for how the world works, or or whether or not there's a God and who that God is, it, it, in a fundamental way, acts as a critique of our own sense of identity and certainty about the world, and our brains are, are very aggressive in trying to form and then hold on to those kinds of beliefs.
0: So how many uh, how many years between this crisis and, and and then your mystical experience on the shores of the Pacific Ocean? What how, how long did you carry this within? In, I three guess three and know, a half, half years. Three and a half years. Yeah, that's that's a yeah. long time to especially with your your marriage and your family and everything. Uh, tell me about that that experience. You describe it as a mystical experience.
1: Yeah, I mean that's a term that scientists have coined to describe those experiences. Um there were two in one night, really. One, I, I had a moment where uh, I found myself at the table of the Eucharist, which is a Christian tradition, and um, I heard an audible voice in a moment of skepticism uh, that really confused and bewildered me <laughs> because uh, I was an atheist and i didn't I didn't believe there was a person, Jesus, historically, to have a voice even in this disembodied, mystical way. And later that night, because I was motivated by my confusion in that moment, um, I was praying really an accusatory prayer towards God at about 2 o'clock in the morning on the beach. And uh, in that prayer, I had a a very, very powerful experience where I saw an incredibly bright light that ultimately encompassed me, and I felt warmth, and I felt love, I felt God's love for me, and I felt God's love for all of humanity, and I just was in this almost unexplainable presence for an indeterminate amount of time. I really didn't have any sensation of the passage of time during that experience, and then it was over, and I'm just standing on the beach in California thinking, what just happened? Like, do I have brain cancer? What's going on here?
0: And um, I don't know if you've ever gotten this, but uh, skeptics could say, I don't know if they've said this to you, skeptics could say, okay, we can diagnose this. You're in cognitive dissonance. You're you're in distress. Your marriage hangs in the balance. Maybe this is just your brain resolving these issues that you've, you've been struggling with.
1: Yeah, that's a totally valid perspective, and probably the one I held initially. I mean, so I've, I've had this experience, and I fly home to Tallahassee, and I go straight to my neurologist and ask for a CAT scan, because I assume there must be something wrong with my brain. When that came back clear, then I went and saw a psychiatrist and asked for uh, diagnostic tests related to hallucinations to see if I was suffering from some kind of mental illness. Uh, so I, I approached the the experience with deep skepticism as well.
0: What were your What were your next step? That's interesting. You you flew home and went to your neurologist. Yeah, you know, you, you turned to neuroscience. Um, I guess you were you were trying to rule out um, other explanations. What were you trying to do there?
1: Uh, the most likely explanation to me was there's something wrong with my brain. I hadn't studied mystical experiences. I hadn't studied at this point. You know some of the, the neuroscience work about religious beliefs. So to me, it just, just a total anomaly, um, and I wanted to get to the bottom of it. At, but at the same time, I, I was also extremely grateful for the experience and hopeful that maybe something would come of it. So the, the very divided reaction, even, even in my own mind.
0: Now, once you rule out uh, brain problems, uh, I guess then you have another series of choices. You one path you could have taken is uh, you know dive right back into uh, your congregation and uh, resume your former faith. That's what you, you you turn to science, apparently.
1: Well, at first I tried the Bible and theologians, and when I would read works of theology or read the scriptures. Uh, it had a really corrosive acidic effect on my very tender new faith it just raised the same questions that drove me out in the first place so i said what if i set aside all of these theological assumptions i used to hold and just start from scratch like what does what what is god is there any room for god in science and uh that really led me to cosmology and quantum physics and search for our origins and what continues reality being reality. And as I kind of worked through that, what I found was a God that was very distant and impersonal, if you could call it God at all. And that didn't answer, you know, how I had such personal experiences with God through my whole life, but especially in that moment on the beach. And that's ultimately what led me to studying neuroscience was, okay, what is happening in human brains when people have experiences like these? And how common is this kind of deeply moving belief?
0: So tell me about that. We, you're, you, you went and talked with scientists. Uh, there, there is a branch of neuroscience, you'd say, that's studying how we experience religious experience, how that happens in the brain. What, what's, what's happening with that science?
1: It's fascinating work. Uh, it, it exists under a loose umbrella called neurotheology, which is studying what beliefs about God do to the brain. It's not, a, it's not a theological discipline. It's not a study of God, but the effects of beliefs of God. And what you find there is fascinating and clarifying for so much of the, the conversation happening across the world today about faith. Uh, You find that there's two different models of God that people hold in their brains. You know, one, one God is primarily angry or wrathful, and when you believe in that God, it does certain things to your brain. But then you can also view God as primarily loving and merciful, and when you believe in that God, it does different things in your brain. And understanding that really can help inform a lot of the differences between fundamentalist religious sects and more peaceful religious sects that are uh, less frightened of outsiders and and less authoritarian. Uh, Neurotheology can help illustrate why doubt ultimately leads to disbelief, and even why it's so difficult for believers to articulate what they believe about God, because the most encouraging finding I found of all was that people who have very deep, sincere belief about God, if you brain-scan them and ask them to think of God, their language center, their temporal lobes, aren't really involved in that process at all. That for someone who loves God very much and believes in God, that belief is much more like a feeling or an experience than a set of logical or linguistic assumptions. And that's why if you say, what is God to a believer? They kind of stammer and pause because their brain's trying to turn into language, something that isn't, in the same way that anyone who's ever been sprung with the question from uh, their significant other, why do you love me? And you stammer and you pause. It's not that you don't know. It's that your understanding is so deep in the brain that it transcends language, and it takes time to turn that into words.
0: Hmm. What are what are these neuro, neuroscientists, what are they trying to get at? I imagine it's different from slightly different from your perspective you're coming as a as a believer trying to understand this what what are the scientists trying to get at, get to
1: yeah the scientists you know they're, they're overwhelmingly not people of faith first of all <laughs> uh, but they're you know you can't deny the impact that beliefs about god have on human society they are profound and so scientists are looking what mechanisms cause this belief what do different, how do different beliefs influence behavior and temperament and health, and uh, how the brain relates to itself and the different parts of the brain. They're looking as more of a um, diagnostician, looking much more pragmatically into matters of faith, uh, so that we can answer you know, how and why questions. They're not searching for the truth about God. They're simply looking to see, how belief in God affects human beings and therefore human society.
0: If you just joined us, we're uh, talking with Mike McCarg, also known as Science Mike, and he's host of the podcast Ask Science Mike, also the Liturgist podcast, and his book is Finding God in the Waves, How I Lost My Faith and Found It Again Through Science. And uh, he's with us for another about seven minutes here. I want to talk a little bit about the idea of certainty. You write in the book that our Western culture wants a clear winner. A lot of this has to do with our neurological craving for certainty. But when you get into, uh, you know, questions of faith, um, th- 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 that's intention with certainty.
1: Absolutely, yeah. You, you, you uh, when you really start to explore deeper ideas of faith, one of the side effects can be that it it sweeps your certainty away, and a lot of people just aren't ready for that. Uh, that loss of control.
0: Hmm. I wonder, um it, it, very interesting passage in your acknowledgements. You acknowledge several people, including your wife and mother. And you say, without your wife and mother, this book would have been about how secular humanism can succeed where religion has failed.
1: Yeah, that's, uh, that's, the personal is universal, right? So, uh I'm a person of faith, and I know that a huge part of how I interpreted these experiences is the way that when my wife and mom learned about my doubt, they loved and accepted me instead of rejecting or trying to correct me. And on a larger scale, a problem we have in the Church today is if someone seems to to push the boundaries of what the Church considers right belief, the normal strategy is, is to correct, and then, if people don't respond, to shun or ostracize people. Um, but my experience, and frankly, psychology tells me that accepting, affirming, and including people is a much better response if your goal is to have people believe in God. Again, based on the way our brains form beliefs on social identity, we need to be around people who believe in order to sustain our own beliefs.
0: Hmm. Uh, I asked you to tell me about your, your personal experience of faith and experience of God, you know, earlier in your life. I wonder if you could tell me ab- what that's like. Describe it now.
1: Oh, gosh, I feel as close to God as I ever have, uh, but we don't talk as much as we used to. <laughs> hmm. uh, today I spend much more time uh, trying to put myself in God's presence through meditation than trying to talk to God and ask for things and, and have that, that, that way I used to approach God. There's so much more mystery in my faith today. Uh, I, I have far less certainty about what I believe about God, and yet my faith plays a deeper role in how I view the world than it ever has. Uh, because my whole life is in this posture of gratitude toward the gift of life and existence and consciousness and awareness, and even the ability to doubt and ask why, I all view as, uh, as a gift, as a journey that's been offered to me by what we call God.
0: We have an email from uh, Glenn, and I want to read that. It's uh, fairly lengthy, but it's very interesting. Um, it, it speaks to the the nuns, and you, we talked about that. The N-O-N-E-S is what we're talking about. Uh, people who describe themselves as having no organized religion, but uh, have a spiritual experience in their lives. And uh, Mike McCarg uh, definitely speaks to to this growing number of people. Uh, so here's Glenn's email. He, he describes himself as a, he says, I'm a nunner says, my number one disconnect with religion, the creation myths, the evangelical community, is that they all come from a Bronze Age intellect. Whether you believe in Odin, Osiris, Zeus, or... I am from the Old Testament. If you ask yourself a few questions, the descriptions become somewhat clearer. For instance, take the Bible. Moses wrote what is arguably the baseline description of God. He wrote that God has lived forever. Asked the question, when was that? The answer is, at a time when the idea of infinity was not fully understood or even really codified. So any lifespan uh, over, say, 100,000 would be considered undefined or forever by those people. Anthropologists have used a simple numerical test to define the advancement of societies by defining exactly how advanced their numbering systems are, whether they understood plurality or how far from the number one they go. Some had just the number one, some went to number two, and further Moses went like this, one, two, many. By these standards, could we not suppose that Moses' description was one, two, dot, 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 forever? I realize that in the book of Numbers, he's written down fairly significant numbers, as if it was the report of Israelite census, so to speak. That being said, the gulf between evangelicals and their 6,000-year-old church uh, Earth ideology and the 5-billion-year-old Earth theory, the Big Bang developed recently by science, leaves a lot of latitude for the idea of infinity from the Bible and an acceptance of the science's explanations. This begs several questions, then. When was God created? How was the universe created? If Moses did not understand a number so much greater than their highest numbers defined, at their time, and the uh, people he was speaking to could not either. Our description from the Bible is technically obsolete. That's why I'm a nunner. I believe many in our society are clinging to a tome which was written so far back that its relevance is highly questionable, questionably translated from the oral to the written and in widely interpreted. I give you the flat earth society as an example. Many are evangelicals who believe the earth is flat based on biblical descriptions, despite so much evidence to the contrary. That's uh, Glenn explaining why he is a nunner, uh, based on, on his uh, understanding of the Bible.
1: Well, uh, Glenn, I agree. Uh, I don't think the Earth was made in 6,000 years. I think the universe is 13.8 billion years old, that it formed from the rapid expansion of a singularity, that the Earth itself was formed via an accretion disk of gas and dust uh, that, you know, uh, it has been around you know, 4.54 billion years. I think science is very clear on that, and I accept it, along with millions of other Christians. So an interesting thing I've noticed is many people in Glenn's particular state of nonness <laughs> is they tend to read the Bible the same way that fundamentalist evangelicals do, that it's this literal, you know, Word of God portrayed... Uh, in a way that is meant to be God's memo to mankind. And I relate to the Bible completely differently than that. I I understand the Bible to be a library of books written by people, assembled by the Church, about God. And the reason the Bible seems to depict ancient cosmologies is because it does. And in fact, the Bible has an evolution of different worldviews, all appropriate, to the time and place each book was written. The Bible doesn't tell one story about God. It tells hundreds. And I turn to the Bible not to learn scientific facts. (laughs) I mean, we have books of scientific fact. Uh, I read Brian Greene, too. I turn to the Bible to understand that for thousands of years, people have been struggling to know, understand, and follow God's teachings in a cultural context, including questions about how the earth Was made. And I I find the Bible liberating and, in fact, encouraging when I see, for example, that the disciples in the time of Jesus walking the earth with Christ were confused about what his message was. Uh, When I see the prophets speaking truth to power about why it's important to watch out for the poor, the orphan, the widow, and the alien, and to not ignore their needs for the wealthy and the powerful. I think that message is maybe more timely than it's ever been, and not less. The Bible, for me, and my faith in general, is not a way to try to force people to believe how old the earth is, but what it means to be human and what it means to love other people well.
0: We'll have to leave it there. I know we have to let you go get on to other things today. Mike McCarg is author of Finding God in the Waves. He's also a host of Ask Science Mike and the Liturgist Podcasts, and you can find more information at Uh Mike McCarg, thank you so much.
1: Thanks. It was a pleasure being here.
0: And thanks for listening to Access Utah.
3: Thanks for listening to Access Utah today. We go now to commentator Gina Wickwar.
2: Some of us who have to undergo physical therapy after a surgery or an accident moan and groan about the time and the aches and pains it entails. Oddly, I'm not part of that crowd, at least not totally. I actually kind of enjoy going to PT because I know it works after, one, having two months of it last year after I had a knee replaced, and two, having it now after an accident in January. My knee came back to almost normal, and I can barely tell it's made of some unobtainium metal. My stability is now practically back to normal, and after countless balances on flat balloons, teeters and totters on styrofoam balls, tandem walks that go on for miles, and wobbling through the obstacle courses designed by some malevolent being from the axis of evil— My neck pain is much less than it was because of the number of pulleys and racks that I am invited to deal with, and because the electrical currents that zap the back of my neck seem, strangely, to give an extra kick to my trapezius muscle." But you know what the best part of PT is? It's all those young people who are earnest, smart, funny, and well-trained and who can pummel your body, screw your head into a machine that looks like something from the dungeon of a medieval castle and force you to stand on one foot on top of an air-filled pillow for a whole minute without falling. All of your challenges are met with a sprightly and eager, good job, even when you had to hold on to a wall or die. These young folks are dedicated, really dedicated, to making their clients well again. They coax you, give you encouraging words, check to see if you need a break, ask if a pillow would make you more comfortable as the electrical current shooting through your neck muscles renders you into a globule of quaking limbs. They're interested in the book you bring with you and want to know why it's called Being Mortal. This query was made by a sweet young woman as my neck was being pulled to 20 pounds of pressure by a traction machine. I mumbled that the book was kind of a reminder of my present condition, but I'm not sure she caught my humor. I tried to add a smile, but the Frankenstein collar around my neck didn't even allow a grimace. So you see, we PT clients are in great hands. Physical therapists are a breed of good-hearted folks who want to make sure that being mortal is a fun time. As I said, I rarely complain and find the whole 3 hours, 3 times a week a great activity. I can't wait to see what else will occur to me in the coming years that will allow me to return to PT and to have a life of muscle spasms, leg and arm cramps, neck pulls, balloon balances and leans into the wall corners to stretch my neck. I mean it. I really can't wait. This is Gina Wickwar.
0: Jeremy Hobson, you've heard the headlines about Obamacare premiums going up 25 percent next year. In some states, it's even more than that.
1: I think this is the key question. If
0: patients start pulling out and you're left with just sick people, it's going to be very problematic. The future of Obamacare. That's next time on Here and Now. Join us this morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio.